ways that God reveals himself. What's the first way that God revealed himself? First way that God, God did something. Creating, create a creation. So God revealed himself in creation. That's the first way he revealed himself. Then the second thing that God did in history to reveal himself. He took his finger and he put it on a stone. And he started to carve onto the stone. What did he carve on the stone? Ten Commandments. First words of Scripture ever written. It's not Genesis 1-1, but, but God wrote the first words of Scripture. Remember, I, I, and that, that just that he wrote, write it, wrote, wrote it. <laughs> wrote, wrote, wrote it on, somebody break that down for me. Wicca, wicca. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so he, he took his finger and he wrote it on stones. And that's the beginning of what we have. Now, you know, then Moses takes that and then God tells him everything else and he writes from Genesis on. And then we have now the New Testament and all of that. So God revealed himself through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. We can see about there's enough revealed about God in creation to hold all men accountable. And then God reveals himself through the scripture. And then there's a whole nother way that God reveals himself. How's that? What's that? Somebody said it. Jesus. Okay. Jesus. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. So now there was creation all around us. Then there was truth revealed in the book. And then the book, the word became life. And it was, God was revealed through a person, Jesus. And then Jesus dies and he resurrects and he ascends to heaven. And then there's one more way that God reveals himself. Major way. Church, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes. And these are all the God things. There's all sorts of moments that happen where you can see God. But these are the moments where like God actually inhabits us in, and inhabits our world in a very unique way. You know, and, and so he takes the Holy Spirit, comes down at Pentecost and fills up the church. And so now that's why uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy that the church is the pillar and the foundation of truth. Because we are God revealed now. Like his, his spirit is, is how he reveals himself and his spirit resides within those who are followers of him, the church. And that, that puts, um, I, I wouldn't say pressure on us because it's really him revealing himself, but it does say that we're the vessel by which that happens. The only pressure that's really on us is to make sure or is to, is to be careful stewards of the fact that we're not revealing me, but we're allowing him to be revealed through me. So the main thing is to get out of the way. That's the hardest part about being a container of the Holy Spirit is to not shine the container so that people see the container, you know, but in, in, but in, Instead, to use Windex on the container so they don't see it. You know, they see right through it and see what's in it. You know, the Holy Spirit. And that's the whole point. And uh, one of the ways that we do that, and we've talked about this over the last three weeks, the whole one of the beauties of, of the Lenten season is that we say, this is a time we specifically set aside to stop looking at ourselves and really look at Jesus. Like, we just look at him. And, and that's what we've been talking about is that, that, that those of us who are in the latest revelation of, like, you know, there's, there's creation, there's scripture, there's Jesus in the flesh, and then there's God being revealed through the church. If, if we want to not be about us and we want to be part of that revelation process, are, we turn back and look at Jesus and say, the spirit that dwells inside of me, the scriptures refers to it not just as the Holy Spirit, but as the spirit of Jesus. I'm going to understand this one who lives inside of me by reading about this guy when he lived on earth and understanding him and understanding he's the very one who lives inside of me. 
Um, and when I do that, when we get absorbed with him, then, then he kind of flows through us. And so that's the whole point is we're staring at him. And, and, uh, when we do that, when we stare at him over the next seven weeks now, starting now, over the next seven weeks, we're, we're looking toward him and, and just at this story. And we look particularly at the last week of Jesus' life. And, and in our case here in the book of Mark, it's even beyond just the last week of his life. It's the, the last few days of the life before, the, before the crucifixion. And, so the reason we focus on that time in particular is because that time is like concentrated Jesus. That's what it is. It's Jesus concentrated. And it's like a little DNA thing in a little uh, genetic code in the scriptures that if you can, if we can fully see Jesus in those few days, then we can see like all of it. You know, it's like packed tight. As a matter of fact, if you just see Jesus on the cross, you can pretty much see the whole story. Like, it's amazing how he packs his character so tightly in those stories. And as God is revealing himself through the person of Jesus, as Jesus is, is God with human flesh, in this moment, he's revealing his character and his most central character quality is love, of course. And so what we're studying in this Time, as we're looking at him, is looking at all the, the, the qualities of his love. He's revealing how his love works. And it works this way and it works this way. And, of course, love, by definition, requires sacrifice. Because it's not about me. It's about you. You know, it's about the other person. That's what love is. It's the fountain going out. And so it requires sacrifice of me and investment into you. That's the whole point of love. And that happens in so many different ways in the passion of Jesus. We watch that, and that's what we're doing throughout this series, is we're looking each week at a different part of the way his love works, you know, and the, the way it gives. And um, this, this week, it's gonna, we're talking specifically the sacrifice of Jesus in the form of giving, and how his love, the sacrifice of his love, is giving, and not just any kind of giving. We're talking about, like, everything, like full giving giving oneself over, giving everything, really, really, really giving. So that's what we're going to be doing in each uh, gospel, except for the gospel of John, really. It's a little bit different. But in the other three gospels, there's always this moment where you hit a verse. You hit the end of a chapter, the beginning of another chapter, could be in the middle of a chapter, where you hit this verse, and obviously something about the whole book shifts and it was like Jesus was doing his ministry and he was, uh, you know, uh, parables, healing, teaching, all of that. And then there's this moment where basically it says, then Jesus turned toward Jerusalem, you know. And it's the moment where all of his love, all of his focus, everything about Jesus just gets extremely concentrated and focused and he's headed toward the cross. And that's in Mark. That happens in Mark chapter 14. Um, and so that's where we're going to be focusing on uh, uh, the Mark through the end uh, for the next seven weeks, and we're going to be starting in uh, chapter 14. And I wanted to take that time just to, to remind us again and set up why we're focusing so intentionally on this. I knew we were going to lose time in the message today by uh, setting that up, but uh, I thought it was important. So uh, you can stand with me now, please, as we honor God's word by uh, reading actually the text for today. This is Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, 
As he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go to prepare for you and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, finished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful. And to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. May God add rich blessing to the reading of his word. You can have a seat, please. Let's pray for a minute here. God, we give you honor and glory, man. We, I, I just want to join in that song that was uh, that led us into this time uh all will sing out hallelujah all will sing out hallelujah god we just ask that um our day today would be filled with that endless hallelujah that our lives would just be absorbed and full of of an awareness of who you are we want to turn away from us less of us and more of you may we decrease may you increase open our eyes to see you and be caught up in the eternal hallelujah and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, this is how I'd like us to see this uh, story. I'd like us to look at it today as this is a, this is an, a historical epic, uh, maybe a movie or maybe a miniseries. And uh, this is the first installment of that miniseries. And the screen, uh, the, right as the, the, uh, the whole, this is the opening. You know, like the previews are over, the commercials are done, whatever. It's time. And it's black screen, and it just says, true story, okay? And then first scene you see is you are in a rugged desert area. It is hot, it is dusty, it is nasty, and it's a leper colony, okay? And in this leper colony, there's some ragtag tents, and there's some people who are sitting around in a lot of pain, and you hear, like, moaning, and you just see some people with all sorts of, like, 
garb over them and they're just kind of like rocking like this. And you see Jesus come walking in, looking around with his disciples, just walking around. And then people see him and they see the crowd and, and they know, they've heard of this name. And so they, they kind of are like looking out and they're like hunched over, but they're coming closer and they're like, we've heard you can heal, heal us, heal us. And, they, and they're kind of like asking for healing. And Jesus, for dramatic effect, we'll put it this way, he, he, he comes over and he reaches out and grabs one of their arms and just looks at the arm and then looks at them and he says, go show yourself to the high priest. Go show yourself to the priest. And they like look at each other and they're like, okay. And, you know, they start going away. And, and as they're going away, they're looking and they're realizing their skin is changing color Right then and there, their skin is beginning to change color and their vision is getting more clear. And all of a sudden there's less pain in their body and and they're functioning differently and they're standing up straight and they start looking around. And at first, the first emotion is not just one of gratitude. It's of absolute wonderment, maybe even terror because of the power. Because of what, I mean, this is so out of the norm. If you work for a pharma company, Think about finding the person who, you know, touches and cancer is gone. Terminal cancer, gone. You know, like what a pharma company would do for that kind of power, right? And Jesus, in this moment, afflicted, all all these people who were afflicted with leprosy, he just speaks a word to them. The power, the just mind-boggling power. And their eyes at first had to just pop open. And they're looking at their hands in total disbelief, like, wake me up. This isn't actually happening. And they're look, but pretty quickly, it changes from like the wonder, terror, disbelief to just flat out exuberant praise, right? Where they are just flipping out. They're like, what? You know, and they're just screaming at each other. And they're like running for the high priest, like he told them to do, just like flat out running. And then one of them trails off. And you're like watching the scene and you're like, why is he trailing off? And then you see him like stop dead in his tracks and just look down. And he looks back up and then he turns around and he takes off the other way, flying back, getting back to where the village is. And all you see is in the distance, you see Jesus and his 12 disciples. And he goes running after him. And as he, He's yelling, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi. And he just does head. It looks like he's sliding into home plate, you know, just slides face first in front of Jesus, you know, dirt covering him. And he's grabbing onto Jesus' legs. And he's like, Rabbi, Rabbi, you know, and Jesus like pulls his head up or whatever. And they're looking at each other in this moment. And there's something incredible that's happening in this gaze. I mean, this guy is aware in this moment of just what's been given to him. You know what I mean? Um, that he's been given life and he's been given freedom and there's nothing that he could have ever done. And this man just saved him, you know, and you can feel it pouring out of his eyes. You look at that face and you're like, oh, there it is, you know. And then you look at Jesus and there's something very different inside of Jesus. There's a deep, deep resonant pain within him. And uh, his jaw is set as if one who has massive amount of power. And there's something about his quality that just demands respect. And yet it's not his power. It's not his power that demands the respect. It's something else. It's love. It's the fact that with all that power, he chose to come to a leper colony. 
And there's something so bizarre and peculiar that's pouring out of his eyes. It's a strength that is far bigger than any strength we can comprehend. And somehow, as we're looking at this man, thanking this man, we realize we're looking at this man who he's looking at, and we're now looking with him, and we're saying, I have to follow this man. I need him. I need to be with him. The scene fades out. And then the next scene you see is you're up above the city. This is like one of those helicopter shots, you know, when you're watching a movie and you see a skyline, but it's from up high, not from down low. And it's this, and you're kind of zooming in toward the city. And this is Jerusalem. And you're coming in and it says, typed across the, the screen, it says like one week later, one week later, Jerusalem, two days till Passover, you know, and you're, you're looking down at the city and you just see caravans. All the roads leading into Jerusalem are full of people with donkeys and cattle and whatever. And they're all kind of converging in on the city. And you see the walls of the city and the gates and, and, and all the different gates being overrun with people and people selling things and it's all kind of converging. And the, and the camera kind of zooms down into the city. And as it's zooming down in the city, it comes into the temple. And here at the temple, you see all sorts of commotion going on and things being sold and animals being transferred and all that. And then it takes a left and it hooks over into a building uh, just off the side of the temple. There's this, there's this room and it's like this ornate room, obviously very sacred kind of room. And in it, in this, it's dimly lit. There's some light streaming in through the side and maybe a few candles. And in it, there's these, these obvious leaders who are in ornate garb. Okay. And, and they're all sitting around a table and they're like whispering like this and they're talking and they're, and then all of a sudden you hear them get mad. No, this has to stop. And then it goes back to whisper to shh, you know, and you hear this whispering, this scheming going on. And you realize they were saying that you can eventually hear, make out what they're saying. You know, it was one thing when he was teaching those things that were, that were different than the way we understood the scriptures and teaching new things about the scriptures. But now healing lepers, promising things that he can't fulfill. Can you imagine what's going to happen with Rome? And you hear the tones go loud and then it hushes down again. This has to end. This must come to an end. We have to stop him now before it gets worse. And then the, the oldest one among them says, this, these things take patience. Remember John. It worked out with John. These things take patience. Not now during the Passover. Who knows what will happen with all these crowds. We'll get there. Just takes patience. Remember John. And then, the, and then it flips over to a scene with John the Baptist. And you see this scene rolling through where John is preaching and he's baptizing. And you see them in the background because we're told that they saw him. And you see them in the background and they're watching John. And then there's this moment where John stops everything and he looks up and he just says, Behold, the Lamb. That quick scene switches again and you see back in front of the temple a lamb, a knife, blood, And the title comes up and it says, love is messy. Then the music plays and it's the opening credits. That's all just the opening scene that sets up the contrast, you know. That's the, that's the pole of the, the dark controlling religious leaders and this powerful one who they're scared of, but yet it doesn't seem like they're going to be able to control. And it sets up love and darkness and, and, and all of that whole thing. And we realize this whole thing of a lamb is kind of at the center of it. 
and Passover and Lamb, and, and it sets up the stage. But then as the music plays and all the opening credits roll, it, then the whole plot slows down, and now it's time to develop the characters. And so the next scene, after all the music plays, um, is you see you're in this home, kind of a normal home. And they're all sitting around uh, the table, and they're kind of eating and hanging out, and you recognize the one face. And the one face was this leper who had been on the ground, okay, looking up at Jesus. And here he is, and it's his home, and he's hosting. You know, and he's he's hosting this whole banquet and everything, which is, we call it a banquet, but I mean, it was dinner, you know. And he, But obviously, this guy's full of joy, you know, and he's just overwhelmed. And and yet, there, and there's, there's something else that's a little bit weird going on, is there's these pockets of conversation that are happening with Jesus' disciples. These weird conversations. And, and they, they're strangely reminiscent of the conversations that were happening with these chief priests. They're a lot lighter. They're not as like dark and heavy. But it's kind of these same tones of like, there's, it feels like they're plotting or planning, you know? So how are we going to, how's this going to work? You know, like he said this and he said that and we're headed down to Jerusalem. I wonder if like he's going to be doing this and they're, they're like figuring stuff out, you know? And you hear that going on. And so the first, that, that's the, the, one of the characters, of course, is the disciples. Another one of the characters is this woman who's going to be coming into the scene here in a minute. And another one of the characters specifically within the disciples is Judas. And the way these develop, I'm going to start with the, the disciples. There's this great, there's this guy, uh, says this, I, I love this. This is a, a book that I was reading this week, and I thought he did such a good job of encapsulating uh, potentially how the disciples were viewing the whole situation. His name is Ken Geyer, and he says this, for the disciples, the ministry was fast becoming a business to be budgeted rather than a savior to be served. Hear that again. For the disciples, the ministry was fast becoming a business to be budgeted rather than a savior to be served. See, and the, the way that we're tipped off about that is because what happens is, is that, you know, this woman comes onto the scene and we don't know who she is. Mark doesn't tell us. I mean, we, we uh, some of us kind of assume that she's Mary because it connects with the story of Mary and the other gospels, but it doesn't actually say that. So we don't know. And I love, it's, it's an awesome thing. It just kind of leaves us guessing there. And, um, but what happens is that as she gives the, this amazing gift to Jesus, spectacular gift to Jesus, the disciples, I want to focus on them first in their response before we get to her. What happens to them? How do they react to this? What would you say their reaction is? How does this hit them? Go ahead, you can answer. Shocked, okay. Shocked is a, probably a great word for it. What else? Anything else? Foolishness. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, they're really offended. I mean, they're, they're like, they're offended by this irrational, shocking foolishness. Why? Well, think about it for a second. I mean, these guys gave up their fishing business, their lucrative tax collecting business to follow this guy around for three years. They've given up everything. And now this woman comes in with, with a, a, a jar of perfume that's the equivalent of, we'll say, about 50 grand. It's the, they said it's a year's worth of wages. The median salary in America is about 50 grand. Um, and so that, we're going to say it's about $50,000 worth of perfume in a bottle. Okay? And she cracks it open and pours it over his head. After these guys have given up everything to follow him, they're on a shoestring budget. They don't know where they're sleeping the next night or anything like that. That's straight offensive. 
Because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. And so what's their response? What do they say she should have done with that? Sell it and give it to the poor. To which Jesus' response is absolutely awesome. He, this, is, uh, this is such an amazing thing because I love that he says, you, you always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me with you. But there's one other word in there that's so important, I think, when we're reading it. And it's in verse 7. He says, for you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. And what he's getting at is their heart, what they want, their will. Because see, in the moment, they've gotten to a place where they're budgeting for the business of the ministry and the kingdom, and they're plotting to see how to establish the ministry. And they've seen the power to heal lepers, and they've seen teaching that everyone would flock to. So they want to jump on the train and figure out how to build the kingdom. And those resources could be better used here. And we could allocate this here and this there. And you can see what they want. They want a kingdom. They want a kingdom. And they're missing Jesus. And that's where we see this woman, very, very different, where she can sense something. We don't know exactly what she senses. We don't know exactly what she knows. But clearly she knows something different than everyone else does. Because when she cracks this thing and pours it over his head, it is very, very obvious at this point that she is sensitive to what's happening with Jesus And Jesus said, she has done what she can to prepare me for my burial. And he gives us a little bit of indication that she can sense something is going dark. And that she can feel his pain. And she has concern for him. And she's expressing something to him. Now this is what I think happens with the camera angle at this moment. Is that as she goes to break the jar, the camera zooms in and everything slows down. And there's kind of a weird moment of silence. Like there had been some music playing and everything kind of gets silent. And you just watch as in slow motion the bottle breaks. And as the bottle breaks and pours out, it's very obvious that there was something artistically available in this moment. That this is a symbol of something. Of something being broken and poured out. And we, and, and we see it, and then there's the smell and the fragrance, this pungent smell, and you watch the reaction of the guys with a fence, and then you see Jesus kind of like just drinking it in, and it's reminiscent of the fragrance that will be given in the prayers of the saints to the Lamb in the book of Revelation. And you see these kind of like prophetic acts that are happening in the middle of it. Of course, she's not trying to do prophetic acts. She's just responding in gratitude and love. But when we act in with the Spirit, according to what God's doing, we have no idea what else He's doing through those things, you know? And so if we're sensitive to God and staying with Jesus and not just trying to build stuff and not trying to be good Christians, but staying with Jesus, listening to Jesus, following the nudge of Jesus, that's when the most profound things happen. That's when the most profound things happen. And so that's exactly what does happen here. And we can sense that this woman has almost... No awareness. Uh, it, it would appear to me that she has almost no awareness for the effects of Jesus' ministry. She only has an affection for him personally as a person. You know? And um, it's, it's easy to assume. I can ask that question of myself all the time. Am I just managing family or am I actually seeing my wife? You know? Am I just getting done what we need to or am I aware of my children? like as individuals, as humans, as people who need a dad right now? Or am I just doing the thing? Am I present or not? Let's just all agree that we are all very, very bad at this. That there's not one of us who can 
say anything to another on this level, and we don't need to feel guilt in this moment. This isn't about us. But that is what's happening here. Do you know what I mean? That's like the, the attentiveness. Josh talked about attentiveness last week. And this is about what are we attending to? And the disciples were about the business. And rightfully so. I mean, it's cool they were doing the kingdom thing, but they weren't seeing Jesus. And this woman, unaware of how it affects everything else almost, who cares? I see Jesus. And she goes and just breaks this thing. Now, um, there's something really important, I think, as um, as we watch her in this attentive uh, posture with God, it's really easy for us to think that this is what the message is about because love is messy, something has to give. And clearly, this is the woman who gave 50 grand of her money to pour it over Jesus' head in an act of anointing, son of David, anointed as king, anointed for burial, all these kind of prophetic convergences and all this stuff, and, and that she's the one who's giving, and that's why we're talking about has something to give, but that's not the way this goes down, because this isn't a story about some woman who's remaining nameless, who I love that he says, that for, for all the time when the gospel's told, that this will be told about her in her honor, well, who's her? You know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's funny. And, the, the, but what happens is what, what the focus is here is it's clearly about Jesus. And so why are we hearing the story about her giving when we're trying to focus on Jesus? And here's why. Because when someone gives in radical response of gratitude, it tells us about the initial action of love. See, she was not a super good lover of people. What she was is one who saw Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we are affected by what we see. And it causes within us, if we truly see Jesus, then it causes inside of us a reaction of gratitude. And for this woman to sacrifice that amount of money, every one of us in this room knows it's irrational. There's not one of us who, if we were confronted with someone who just said, I just want to drop 50 grand today on like an experience. I'm going to have a party for Jesus today and spend 50 grand on it, you know? And then it's like, ah, there's a lot we can do with 50 grand. And I think that's not very good stewardship, you know? That's not taking good responsibility of our money. And she's like, stewardship, Jesus is right here. What moment would you like me to spend my money on other than the one where Jesus is right here? You know, and and that's kind of how it happens with her. This is what's happening is, is she is feeling and knows the deep love, that thing where the leper was down on his knees and looks up in the eyes and sees love coming out of this man and realizes that this man is giving everything. He's just not taking all that power and going to a leper colony. He's leaving the celestial palaces of heaven to come to the ghetto of earth that we've turned it into when we messed up his creation. And yet he came down. And she can feel it. And she might not be able to explain it all, but she knows his love. And her reaction is, I will give you the best of what I have. That's not because she's good at love. She loves because he first loved her. It's not that she's a good giver. It's that he is an incredible gift. And that she's saying thank you. And that's the point. 
And as the story goes on, we don't have time to get into the, the all the rest of this story, so I'm going to cut out the, the last part of it. But what we see is is ongoing throughout the story, we see as Judas responds with this, oh, I can't stand it. Like he gets so mad. You know what I mean? There's that, because he's the one holding the money bag. And he's like, nobody consulted me. You know, whatever. There's all that frustration. And he's just angry at this point. And so he seeks out those high priests and says he will help them. Then they promise to give him money. And he has a contractual relationship with them. And we realize at this point that he had a contractual relationship with Jesus. That he didn't have a covenant with Jesus where he loved Jesus no matter what. That he was on a contract and he felt like Jesus was breaking his end of the bargain. And so he was mad. And so now he goes and changes where his contract is. And when that whole thing happens, what sets up, and you see it in the upper room, once they get to the upper room, and I'd love to set this, the film stage for that one too, but we're not going to do that right now. What we'll say is, is that throughout the remainder of the story, we see this contrast. And the contrast is there are those who can see Jesus. And because of it, they can see his absolute unending grace toward them, where he's pouring himself out for them. And their response is gratitude. They just react with gratitude. Simon the leper, you know, gratitude. Mary or whoever it was, gratitude. But then in the moment, there's these disciples who can't even see the grace of Jesus. They're they're still trying to control and they have fear and insecurity. And so instead of seeing the grace of Jesus in the the moment, they're blinded by their own greed and, and their entitlement and their sense of control. And power. And of course, that's true of the religious leaders, but it's even true of the, the apostles. And one of the beautiful things that this scripture does is it not only sets up the rest of the story by preparing us for Passover, but it says that there is a deep, deep need for Jesus, even among the most dedicated. That the most dedicated of followers are unaware and incapable of being attentive to Christ the way they need to be. That they fall asleep in the garden. And that in the moment when there's only, you know, when there's so much to, to love on Jesus with, it's just, they don't, they're not there. They can't see it. And they need him to be the savior. You know, and it, it sets that up wonderfully. And it shows that there is this ability to give in um, amazing ways to Jesus like this woman does. But the gift cannot be out of our own power. It has to be in a response to a savior which means that my, the primary objective here, there's only one thing left to give. Jesus is the gift. They said, we should give this to the poor. We'll control the giving. And they weren't realizing that he was the gift and they were the ones that were in need, you know? And the, the, the whole point is that the only way that someone is able to actually live like St. Francis, the only way that someone is actually able to get to that place of love is not by trying to be a giver. It's by being aware of the gift. By being, instead of saying we have to give to the poor, it's understanding that I am the poor and I need the gift. That I am not powerful like the song just said. I'm the powerless, the poor and the powerless. And when we are broken and poor and powerless and we can see Jesus in all of his glory, then we respond to Jesus with great gratitude and that pours out in love anytime we want. Anytime we want. As opposed to, doing the thing we're supposed to be doing in order to push things forward. But the reaction of want, of desire, is one of thanks. The only gift left for us to give is one of gratitude. That's it. Just one of gratitude, of thanks. Um, Jesus, 
gives us this great principle of where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, which means this, that what I give to, that's what I'm going to end up investing into and caring about. And this awesome thing happens where you think about this whole situation and you say, what's the gift? And you realize Jesus is the one who's giving. And then we say, what is it that's a sacrifice for Jesus to give? He, he doesn't need money. He doesn't need it. He is eternal. He doesn't have to worry about time. What is it that he gives? He gives his attention. He gives his heart. And he lays down his life for us. And he gives it all. Just gives everything. In the moment, being present, giving himself fully over to us. And that's his gift because he cares. And that is the awareness that this woman had, that there is not a person in this world who has ever looked at me the way he's looking at me. He is so present right here, right now with me. And I have been distracted by every man or every job or every whatever I've had. And in this moment, I am not distracted. I see this man seeing me and my response. I'll give him anything he wants because I love him. That's what it is to see that love is messy because somebody has to give. And the only person in the whole story who actually gives is Jesus. The rest of us, the only thing we can actually give is thanks. Let's pray.